Welcome to Longevity Now, the program where you will find all the news and views of life extension from around the world. If that sounds familiar, it is because that is the tagline from the Sunday evening update. I'm your host, Justin Lowe. If you have been out of the loop for a while, the Immortality Institute went through a little change over the winter, is trying out a new face, a new front, a new name uh, to use for different initiatives and marketing, and that name is Longevity. Kind of a play on words, uh, longevity and city, referring to a community of people who are interested in promoting anti-aging, longevity, and rejuvenation. And the program, Longevity Now, is going to be similar to the prior Sunday evening update. We will have a featured guest on most programs, and the interview of said guest will be the heart of the program, the most information-dense part of the program, let's call it, and that will be made available as a podcast. After each interview, we will have some headlines, announcements, discussion, and who knows what other type of fun activities that can be had through a live streaming broadcast, which, by the way, is not up and running yet. While I'm working on producing a more full-featured multimedia show, please enjoy this audio episode. Our first guest is someone who is familiar to the community. He is Nason Schooler. The Immortality Institute is sponsoring research into laser ablation of lipofusin. The idea is to use lasers to destroy lipofusin within, within cells in order to see if this confers extra longevity to an organism. And the organisms in this experiment are roundworms, C. elegans. This type of laser treatment might not be something that can be immediately or easily transferred for use in human longevity and rejuvenation. However, the value of the results cannot be understated because it will be an important data point in validating the damage theory of aging. For this interview, I traveled to Nason's new lab and got some informative sound bites. I will start out with some of the technical discussion and then talk more in-depth about the experiment and setup later on. In this first three-minute segment, Nason discusses the history, physics, and application of selective photothermolysis. Yeah, the, the principle is, is called selective photothermolysis, and it was actually, just, I don't want to say discovered, it was kind of codified around 82 uh, by a group of researchers that um, they were interested in how laser treatments were working because they were already using laser treatments in ophthalmology to get rid of lipofusin in the eye. And they knew it worked. They didn't know how it worked. So they started doing a bunch of modeling and stuff. And, and they basically figured out that it all has to do with the nature of absorption. And the absorption of light is it's really a process of capture of photons and that, that energy ends up indirectly getting turned into heat energy and absorption however depends on two different things which is very important see normally in physics when they talk about absorption they just talk about the extinction coefficient which is you know how readily is is a given photon how likely is it to be readily absorbed for the material in question and there will be a whole spectrum sure. You know, based on how well it absorbs different photons of different wavelengths. Well, that's only half the side, you know, half the story, however. And the real key thing in dermatology and ophthalmology where they're using these lasers turned out to be the uh, density factor as well. And it kind of makes sense. If you've got, you can have a, a material that absorbs a certain frequency 
half as well as another. But if it's five times more dense, well, it's going to end up, you know, getting like a two and a half times advantage of absorption, where it, it, by, by just the numbers, you'd think it would get less. So that, that's what happens within a tissue, because you have lots of different substructures within that tissue that have different densities. And that's where selective photothermolysis comes in, because then with a granule of a certain size and a certain density and a certain ability to absorb particular wavelengths, the other size is the other issue, I guess, that, that comes into the picture, which they discovered. Uh, and that has to do with thermodynamics. So number one, yeah, you, you heat up whatever your particle or any kind of cohesive mass, mass that you can identify, uh, you heat it up, but then what happens? You know, that heat goes somewhere, it's transferred somewhere else. And that heat transfer, when you're talking about high power, short periods of time, that heat transfer becomes the major factor that determines what happens to that particle. And so that's the whole magic. If you get a tiny particle, you heat it up like that, but it's also bleeding off heat like that uh. to its surroundings. Uh, and then you get something with less surface area to its volume with the larger particles. If you can still heat it up fast, it can't bleed it off in time, and you can actually carbonize and fragment the material without hardly doing anything to the, the surrounding And that's material. what is happening with the lipofusin. That, that, and that's what's happening with pigment granules uh, that even contain lipofusin in like age spots, for example, that they do treat with lasers. Sure. Now let's move on to some common questions that people have had about the experiment. In this next segment, Nascent answers the question of what happens to lipofusin once it is destroyed by the laser. Good it, is it, is it known what happens to the lipofusin once it is uh, destroyed? Once yeah, well, that, that's the same question, basically, that you run into with tattoo removal, too, because you destroy these ink particles and fragment them, and then what? And it's a concern with tattoo removal, too, because a lot of times you get toxins from the, the ink particles that seep into cells and things, because that's basically what has to happen within a tissue in the body. There's no, there's no like, sewer system, you know, where things can just magically disappear on their own. They pretty much have to be taken out by a cell. In this next soundbite, Nason further explains the process of clearing lipofusin in the roundworms as compared to other types of human cells that have much more lipofusin. The idea is that lacing young cells would not be too harmful to the cells because they don't have a lot of lipofusin due to aging. Now realize you've got we're dealing with small structures that are much smaller than the cell itself. Yeah. Uh, number one, and the quantity is hopefully going to be very small if we do it soon enough. You know, I suppose if you had an insanely aged cell, but even in those, you don't get nearly as much accumulation of pigment as you do in a patient with a lysosomal storage disorder. So that's important. It's known that the cells can hold a lot more pigment and things than they even do in the aging process. And so, so yeah, basically the short answer is those get taken out by cells through the process of you know, they, they basically end up endocytosing the granules if they're outside of the cell, okay. or even within the cell, the active lysosomes and things will grind those up into their constituent parts and okay. spit them back out again. One of the more interesting questions is whether there is a significant difference between lipofusin in roundworms and in humans. Is there any difference between uh, lip lipofusin that accumulates in worms in, uh, or as compared to mammalian lipofusin? Sure, and, and even in a mammalian organism, you'll have a ton of different types uh, within the various tissues. Of lipofusin? Yeah, and, and even within a given tissue, you can have several different types. 
forming, depending on where it came from, you know, what material it came from that got oxidized and things. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so in a way it kind of helps that we're using kind of a blanket approach. If you've got anything that will absorb readily in these wavelengths, which any type of steroid or life diffusion will, then you're going to hit it. So that wouldn't be so. that, that wouldn't necessarily be a concern in this experiment because it's and it's certainly you know any type of lipofuscin has a similar structure no matter what uh, life form we're talking about it here. It really boils down to density. density. We're going to end up clearing out anything that is that dense that's within the size of the lipofuscin granules, which is smaller than the size of a lysosome, which is smaller than the size of a cell. An interesting follow-up to the question of lipofusin variation is what about other dark pigmented structures within the cell and the thermal effects of that lacing? And then uh, you mentioned that um, it's known that uh, lipofusin absorbs green wavelengths. Um, and then what other things in the cells might absorb the laser as well that perhaps might affect the lifespan or health of the worm? Yeah, in general, you most objects that are, most tissues and things that have a red color or a darker orange brown colors, those are the colors they're reflecting, so they're tending to absorb the green colors better. And lipofuscin is a darker Yes, yeah, dark reddish brown pigment. But also, of course, the color is one thing, the density is the other, and then the size of the dense particles. So sure, you have molecules uh, and proteins and things that are readily going to absorb this stuff, but it doesn't matter because they're so small, you can't get enough energy to them in the small amount of time that, that, that we deliver this dose. So, so that's, that's what this whole selective photothermolysis is based on, is basically with a given pulse of a given strength and a given length of time that it lasts, you basically end up selecting for a specific size range of particles okay. that you can heat up and destroy. And ones that are bigger than that take too long to heat up, they won't get destroyed. Ones that are smaller than that bleed off their heat too easily, they don't get destroyed. So actually, in that range of size, when we have like an 8 nanosecond pulse, that, that should target very small lipofusin particles within the cells and not larger aggregates than a digestive tract or anything like that. So, okay. And now in this next soundbite, Nason expounds upon the thermal effects within post-mitotic cells. In dermatology, it's known that a lot of cells do get destroyed. In fact, they try to because they don't care. You know, they can, It'll they be can take out. It can be yeah, replaced. They'll yeah. be replaced by the tissue. But there's a different dynamic going on with a lot of the larger postmitotic cells, like nerve cells and things. They're of a lot larger size. Now, the lipofusin does tend to collect towards the nucleus of those cells, which is often on the order of a smaller size. But I guess basically the hope is with the larger organs, and this really hasn't been tried, so we don't know, but the hope is that in those post-mitotic cells that are generally larger, hopefully more resilient, that we'll be able to find a happy medium okay. where we're going to be causing some damage to cells. We can't help that. Yeah. But what we want to do is cause little enough damage that the cell won't kill itself and that it can Still give it a little to... time, repair itself, and be back to normal. And finally, Nason explains the possibility of using different wavelengths of laser light in order to further investigate the optimal outcome. Well, we kind of know which one's going to be the best. It's going to be about as intense as you can get. The oh. trick is how intense can you get and still keep your worms alive. So, so really, the other way to look at this is we're trying to keep worms alive uh, and get the best conditions to do that yes. and give them the most 
punch we can give him. The most punch you can give to destroy him. As many punches, yeah. And and the thing is, you have a laser here uh, that operates on a certain wavelength that is absorbed by liposuction. Yeah, and actually there's a couple different wavelengths with this laser. We can switch between infrared and a green. Okay. And it's known that the green is better for, uh, the liposuction absorbs green a lot better. Of course, a lot of other things do too, but that gives us another parameter to play with. We oh, can actually sure. use change the wavelength, wavelength of, yeah. of the light that's going into the worm. And I hope all of the previous sound bites help everyone understand more in depth what is going on during this experiment. Uh, the last sound bite here is once again just an overview of the full experiment and a look at the various equipment that Nason will be using in his new lab. It's information that many of you are familiar with, and in fact, I intro it with the Sunday evening update with Nason Schooler, so uh, it was taped a little while ago. This information is probably better viewed than listened to, and you can find the video in the longevity forums we have a laser ablation experiment forum and you can also find it at the Iminst YouTube channel and here we are with a familiar guest on this Sunday evening update it's Nason Schooler who the Immortality Institute did raise some money for some lifespan experiments with worms and we're going to be starting that up once again here in Iowa, we got uh, he's got a nice little lab set up here. And why don't you, for some people who might not have been around for the, the first trial run of the uh, experiment, can you give us a little background on it, just a real general overview? Yeah. So basically, the idea is that one component of the aging process is aging pigments that accumulate and uh, within the cells. And there's a lot of theory that uh, these are harmful to the cell, and as they get accumulate within the cell over time that they start to kill an organism basically. And they could time. be one of the key Yeah, one of the components that, that contributes to the, the deterioration with aging. So as a possible treatment and also to test that theory, we basically have latched onto a method for destroying pigments uh, within living tissue that's already used in dermatology and ophthalmology where they use pulsed lasers to zap pigment granules and destroy them in living tissue causing a minimal amount of harm to the tissue itself. So now we're, we're using C. elegans worms, which are a microscopic worm. About the round worms? Yeah. Short lifespan? One millimeter long, and yeah, they live a couple weeks, two to three weeks. Um, maybe we can treat them very easily, test the effects on the lifespan. And see if um, we get the positive or negative effects on the lifespan from uh, destroying the lipophysis. Well, that's great. And uh, now let's take a look at some of the equipment that Nason will be using down here in the lab. And uh, what we have here is where uh, Nason is going to be culturing the worms. We've got a little refrigerator here, a uh, standard lab refrigerator, I think. Well, no, it's near room temperature. That's the tricky oh. part. You need one that can maintain refrigeration at close to room temperatures. You get your household fridge, it probably won't be able to maintain a consistent 60 degrees because it's too close to room temperature. And it's 60 degrees, that's worms. Uh, grow the best? Is that's, that the, that's the 20 degrees Celsius. 20 it's, degrees. There's basically three temperatures you can do worms at, and 20 degrees is the middle of the road. It's the standard for most lifespan experiments. Okay. You can do a little warmer. You can, you can do 25 degrees Celsius, uh, and they'll do much shorter experiments. And They grow faster. They live shorter yeah, lives. Yeah, it's crazy. You have oh. trouble. Within 24 hours, you have trouble grabbing your worms before they were fruitful and multiplied, and now you have a whole plate full of worms, and it gets really crazy. Uh, okay. But uh, And then you can do a, a 16 degrees C, and that's kind of the standard for a longer-term storage of the worms and kind of maintaining them in the background. 
And typical lifespan is three weeks or so of uh, yeah. This life? At this temperature for the wild type, you'll get some that'll get close to uh, to three weeks. Most of them will kill over about 14, 15 days. But there's always a few stragglers that'll. And now we're taking a look at the laser that'll be used in the experiment. Can you explain uh, the laser here, uh, how it operates, and yep. how you're going to laser the worms? So th this is the laser itself, really, all in this oh. handpiece. Okay. And this is like the power source here. Yep. Okay. It, this is the power supply. It also contains a water pump. You, you see, this is a typical setup for lasers. Basically, okay. there's there's usually a head unit and then a, like remote unit that has the the. I see. Tricky part is all of the sensitive optics that are precisely aligned to get the beam just perfect are in here. So in you don't want to drop the thing. <laughs> then you have to send it back to San Francisco and oh, they were, you know, repair it for a couple hundred bucks and you need another one. But uh, and then when you're going to laze the worms, you're going to have a structure such as a vise or a. Um, yeah, I'll um, set up a bracket. A bracket. With a, something height adjustable, because I have to be able to lock it in. It. The laser has two different wavelengths coming straight out of the device. It's like an infrared. It's 1024 nanometers. It's got a small optics device that I left in the case there that uh, will basically double that back on itself. So you get double the wavelength or, or double the frequency, and that will give it like a 532 okay. green color. And uh, we'll be using both of those to treat the worms. The, the green is pretty harsh because it's very effective at removing pigments, but I think that's going to be useful because the And here we have a microscope so you can uh, take a look at some of the worms yeah. as they're growing as the, after they've gone through their treatments. Well, and that's how I transfer the worms from point A to point B, from plate to plate. Oh, okay. We use this scope all the time. It's like it's like a essential component of worm maintenance, basically. Okay. But yeah, for now, to look at what we've done, that's what we're using. I'm planning on getting a better scope so we can actually image the effects of what we've done and, and catalog those things. All right. And this marks the end of the podcast portion of the show.